Good morning. Uh, scripture today comes from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word for us today. Well, I think I can say uh, with confidence, I'll just go ahead and assume I'm speaking on behalf of all of you in saying this, that, that I wouldn't wish life with coronavirus on anyone. And if you would, we'll just keep that to yourself. Uh, it's, you know, it's brought, think about this, it's brought an early death to over half a million people worldwide that we know about, probably more. Um, it's, it's sent shockwaves through the global economy, Right? And, and it's pulled the plug on some of my favorite expressions of church life. So what I'm about to do is not an exercise in group commiseration, but perhaps it is in part. I don't want it to be, but so you know what's in my heart. I, I miss the faith-stirring effect of loud singing. And I'm not just talking about the singing from the stage, but there are times, you might not even know this, where I stop singing. So I can listen to all of you because it strengthens my heart. I miss being able to do that, or at least to hear you. Um, I miss the gift of a hand physically resting on my shoulder in prayer. You know, I miss lingering over lunch in the foyer. It's been over four months since we've eaten together as a church. I, I say that's not good. <laughs> and, and I missed a host of other ways that the Lord creates us to move toward one another, not away during normal times. Um, but I, I say all that with this in view, friends. I, I can already see four months in a way that the Lord has used this whole coronavirus thing um, for good in my heart. And I'm presuming I'm not alone, okay? So, so here's what's happened. This has exposed the degree to which I have derived peace, and security from making and executing long-term plans. And I say that, very aware, because I love planning, that the Bible repeatedly commends the wisdom of anticipating and preparing for the future, right? That's a good thing. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Proverbs 22.3, the prudent see danger, hides himself. Isaiah 32, 8, he who is noble plans noble things. So I like planning, and I'm glad God says it's good. It makes me like it more. But you know, it's, it's one thing, isn't it, to plan for the future. It's an entirely different thing to look to my plans to give me comfort for today and hope for tomorrow, isn't it? Why is, why is that a problem? 
You might think, oh, I do that all the time. Come for today, over for tomorrow. What, what's the problem with that? Why, why is that a problem? It's a problem, friends, because the moment I do that in my heart, I make my plans my functional God. My functional God, okay? In the sense that I'm trusting them to give me joy and life. I'm trusting them, my plans, to make everything wrong right. And I sin against the one true God in the process. Because to the degree I'm trusting the power of my plans to heal and restore, I'm not trusting the saving power of Jesus. That's a problem. And so the Lord has kindly (laughs) disrupted my long-term plans, many of them, in this season, and made it difficult to quickly replace them, which is forcing me to depend more on him and less on myself. And I say, that's always a good thing. But it's also an uncomfortable thing because it's not natural, is it? What's, What's natural? What's natural is to depend on myself. To to take comfort in feeling like I'm in control of tomorrow on some level. What's, What's unnatural is the quiet confidence that comes from knowing I'm not in control. God is. That's unnatural. So think about why is that unnatural? Why why is it so against our normal instinct to live, to move through life with a quiet confidence that comes from knowing God is in control? I'm not. Why is that unnatural? Well, I think, friends, it's because trusting God at a very basic level, it forces us, it pushes us to relinquish, to let go of something that we hold on to as incredibly dear. I might so, go so far as to say this is my precious. <laughs> and that is our perceived power of self-determination. The power of self-determination. It can even feel American, can it not? <laughs> to delight in my power of self-determination. We love to tell ourselves and one another, you can be and do whatever you want to be and do as long as you don't give up. I mean, I'd say nine out of 10 scrolling marquees on local middle and high schools say that in some way. And I think it's why we're drawn to rags to riches stories. Or why for some of you who are older, Rocky reruns don't get old. And and I I say that recognizing, as as the Word of God does, that human ambition can be an incredible force for good. It can be that, right? You you should be ambitious, friend, to use all the gifts and abilities God's given you for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God. But, But our ambition goes south. It gets in trouble, winds up in a ditch. The engine falls out of it when we jettison a critical attitude called humility. And that is what James is after in these final few verses of chapter 4. Humility expresses itself in countless ways in the Christian life, but James zeroes in on one of the most important here. 
And that's this. That humility recognizes there's only one person on the throne of the universe. And it's not you or me, it's, it's God. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 8. Uh, remember this. Implication, we're good at forgetting it. And stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You can't say that. You realize that? You, you can't say that. No human being can say that. God, God's plans, God is saying, always come to pass. Your plans may come to pass, but they may not. Why not? Because you're not sovereign. And humility remembers that. That's the goal of this passage. James wants us to be a people, as I said, who, who move through life. What's humility mean? A quiet confidence that comes from knowing we're not in control. God is. That's the goal of this passage, that, that we would move through life with that kind of quiet confidence. That, that sort of humility, friend, it doesn't mitigate our ambitions or lessen our ambitions or, or pull the plug on our ambitions. It, it keeps our ambitions in the realm of reality, okay? Where, where they remain a, a holy means of serving God instead of an arrogant means of replacing God. And James pushes us in that direction, a wholly humble ambition by making two main points here. I love how simple James is, time after time. Two points push us that way, okay? Point number one, the mortality of man reveals the folly of presumption. Okay, your mortality, mortality of man, reveals the folly of presumption. Look at verse 13. Typical James, he wastes no time Hitting his target audience, okay? It's crystal clear. Come now, you who say, here he goes, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James isn't claiming to be directly quoting someone, okay? So don't say, well, I never said that, so I'm going to pull up my smartphone and play something right now. No, no. <laughs> No, he's not claiming to make a direct quote. He's capturing an attitude, right? An ethos, a, an approach to life where we presume a unilateral ability to determine when and where and what and how long we will do something. Okay, it's a way of thinking or speaking or acting that, that assumes we, we can just take our will and desires and impose them on the future with impunity. That's what he's talking about. And I say, that's really attractive. 
really attractive, which is why we're drawn to it, right? We, we do that in the business world. We can do it. When we describe our, our three-year, our five-year, our ten-year plan with, with supreme self-confidence, you know, we, we can do it in our personal lives when we kind of mentally map out the next 10 to 15 years of our life, and then we boast to ourselves and others about, about all our plans for the future. Hey, guess where I'm going? Onward and upward, you know? Or, or we can do it as moms and dads. When we implement a certain parenting strategy, assuming that will produce A equals a certain kind of child. We do it all over the place. You know, we even do it in the church. This is sad but true. When we declare, like, exactly how much money we're going to raise, or how many baptisms we're going to have, or or how many ministry initiatives we're going to start. And, And I want you to notice here in verse 13, James isn't saying that having a business plan or just planning categorically is wrong. He's not criticizing planning per se. He's exposing the folly of assuming that because we want or have planned to do fill in the blank that we are bound to achieve fill in the blank. That's what he's getting at. So why is that foolish? Why is that foolish? Why, why do I say that kind of presumption is folly? Well, James gives us two reasons in verse 14. Look there. The first concerns the limits of our power, and the second confronts the essence of our nature. So first, James says, you say you're going to do such and such, yet, keep your eyes on verse 14 if you have a Bible open, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) He's right, isn't he? We don't know the future. I mean, there are times in our life when we can make an informed guess. Maybe you've been one of those folks who seems to get right more than you're wrong, okay? But some of the most tragic events in our lives, I mean, things like miscarriages or car accidents or, or layoffs or breakups or, or tragic events in our nation, you know, the, the JFK assassination or 9-11, the Great Depression or coronavirus pandemic. We, do we see those things coming? No. No, we, we might acknowledge them as being within the realm of the possible, but we don't know exactly how or when or how long or where. We don't know how that's going to show up. Why not? Why not, friend? Think about why not. Why don't we know that? It's because our knowledge is finite. We, we don't even know all there is to know about the present or the past, right? Let, let alone the future. And yet, the collective witness of Scripture is that that is not the case with the God who created us. Okay, he, what, what did the prophet Isaiah say? What did I read just a few minutes ago? God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the beginning... What? Things not yet done. Okay, so in other words, God doesn't just know the future because he has some sort of cool superpower that, you know, like future glasses, that enable him to see into it. He knows the future because he ordains the future. He plans the future. He orchestrates the future down, down to the smallest detail of your life and mine. That's why he knows it. 
It's not something outside of himself that he has mastered like a school textbook. It is the future within the borders and confines of all he has eternally ordained to happen. He knows exactly what will happen tomorrow. And beyond what he's revealed to us in his word, let's just be honest. You and I have no idea. Proverbs 27.1 Do not boast about tomorrow. Why not? For you do not know what a day may bring. Okay, that, that's the first reason our presumptive planning is, is foolish. That's the limit of our power. But, but the second one James gives a second reason presumptive planning is foolish I think it's even more humbling. Okay, look again at verse 14. What is your life, he says? Okay, let's just, first let's point out the limits of your power, but you know what? Let's go deeper. Let's go to the essence of your nature. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and it vanishes. Do you realize there is no quantity of self-esteem in the world, friend? They can change the fact that you are mortal. Your life has a beginning. And and barring the the return of Christ before you die, your life will have an end. So, So maybe you fancy yourself a great businessman or a great athlete or a great engineer, or a great parent, or an exceptional friend, or, or a rising artist, or a skilled musician, or maybe you, maybe you think of yourself as, as, who am I? I'm straight, or I'm gay, or I'm transgender, or I'm black, or I'm white, or, or some other ethnic or sexual badge of identity that we look to in this world to define who we are, the essence of our nature. But friend, the God who speaks what is true answers the question this way, who are you? What, what's your life? You're a mist. Or otherwise translated, you're a smoky vapor. You're here for a brief moment, and then you will vanish. We need to think about the implications of that. Because in our pride, we, we prefer to think otherwise. I don't like that. A, a smoky vapor? I mean, you want to try again, God? It, it's incredibly humbling to remember the fragility of our life. It's kind of what makes verse 14 feel like a smack in the face. But I would also argue it's, it's also incredibly comforting to read that. Why? Because we know, if we're being honest, we know it's true. We know it's true. The older you get, the more you know that's true. Right? Because so much of our life, so so many of our our modern conveniences and comforts, and and you could argue even a lot of our healthcare system, it's it's designed to punt our mortality downfield, to to keep it out of sight and out of mind. I I have yet to see a front page story on exactly what goes down in a funeral home. We don't want to go there. And yet death always wins, doesn't it? I mean, you could be the greatest, wealthiest star basketball player in the world, and in a flash, your helicopter could lose an engine and crash into a hillside. 
And part of what makes the Bible and, and just Christianity, maybe you're wrestling with Christianity, hear this. Part of what makes the Bible and Christianity so compelling is that it actually resonates with reality. You think about that? It, it speaks the truth about our experience of life in this world. So why does death always win? Well, it wins, friend, because when sin entered God's perfect world, man became mortal. And becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, doesn't make you an exception to that rule. When, when you turn from sin to trust and follow Jesus, you become what? A dearly beloved son or daughter of the king. But, but when it comes to your life in this world, you remain a mist, a smoky vapor. I mean, have you ever watched an outdoor fire pit or maybe seen a chimney from afar and just watched that smoke kind of curl up into the sky? And then what eventually happens? You can't see it anymore. It's gone. Or, or maybe you've, you're one of those people who, from June through August, wherever you go outside, you've got one of those spray mist things with a wee battery-powered fan. You, know, you do that in the air. You ever watch what happens to those droplets? I see them, I see them, I see them. Or, or, you know, maybe you've been hiking as I have up in the mountains and you wake up in the morning and, and you can stand and literally watch as the sun rises and that bank of fog a thousand feet below you just goes, gone. Friends, that is what all of us are like. We're mortal. And it's the height of folly, James is saying, the height of folly for mortal men to think and speak and act as if we are immortal God. <laughs> because we're not. We're creatures. We're, we're weak. We're small. We're, we're dearly beloved for Jesus' sake. But we don't stop being grass, mist. So don't assume you know what you will do today or what you'll do tomorrow. Okay? You simply don't know what the future will bring. You could die tonight. That's not an exaggeration or a preacher's manipulation technique. That's the truth because we're mortal. And Christianity isn't alone in observing that. You realize this? Christianity isn't alone in, in pointing out the folly of presumption. There are many secular philosophers who recognize the limits and the futility of this idea of human self-determination given our mortality. But here's the critical difference, okay? Here's where Christianity does something very different. It doesn't stop with saying that. It doesn't stop there. It says that, but it doesn't stop there, okay? Yes, we're a flash in the pan. Yes, we're a blip on the radar. Yes, our, our life is transient and passing away. But listen, the truth of our existence and the truth of the world that we live in goes even deeper than that. That's not the only thing that we can say, in other words. Point number one, the mortality of man reveals the folly of presumption. Point number two, the providence of God reveals the wisdom of submission. I love how theologian Doug Moo 
up describes the importance of James' second point, the, the critical importance of the fact James doesn't stop with verse 14, which could leave him no different than a secular philosopher. He says this, It is not enough to recognize that one's own life is uncertain and transitory. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that, right? What these merchants, all of us, need to go on to reckon with is that their lives are also in the hand of God. Think about that. You know, in our, in our arrogance and presumption, what do we tend to say? We tend to say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, what, what does the humility of wisdom say? Look at verse 15. Instead, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So what's James saying there? It's really important. that He's saying, friend, that the fact that you are not in control doesn't mean you live in a world in which no one is in control. Okay, your, your entire life, from start to finish, along with every aspect of the world around you, past, present, and future, is firmly under the sovereign control of God. And, and that foundational spiritual reality Governing every material reality in the universe, your existence included, is clearly set forth in Psalm 93.1. You, you want a summary of this entire passage in three words. Here we go. Psalm 93.1. The Lord reigns. Or in Spanish, el Señor reina. The Lord reigns. And in that single sentence, friend, that single declaration lies all of our joy in the present and all of our hope for the future. That the creator of all things, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, he's not arrayed alongside of us like some sort of superpower attempting to, to make the best of things, and he's just better at it than you are. So, you know, trust him, not you. No, okay? He's seated on the throne of the universe. He's, he's high and lifted up, right? He, he's the one who from eternity past and to eternity future, no matter what you think of him or how you respond to him, will always be surrounded by cries of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Why is that? Because he's an arrogant narcissist? <laughs> no, because he's supreme in majesty, spotless in beauty, and, and overflowing in justice, and full of mercy, and, and unrivaled in wisdom, and perfect in power. Translation summary, he's the sovereign one. And so that means that you might feel incredibly small, and maybe, friend, maybe you've told nobody else this. God knows the smallness and finitude of your life has drawn you into depression or even into contemplating suicide. You might feel the weight of your mortality. It might feel like the finitude of your life is just crushing you. 
but you need to hear from the word of God this morning. You are not alone in a meaningless universe. You're not. God created you. God loves you. Right now, he is doing what he has always done. He is reigning supreme over every detail of your life. And if, and if you doubt that, yeah, right, preacher man. If you doubt that because you don't have a category for, for how anyone could be in control at all, given the turmoil within you or the suffering around you, could it be, friend, that you have reduced the ineffable mystery of the will of God to the finite, confined borders of your human understanding? Could that be? Ever done that? If everything God did made sense to finite man, what kind of God would that be? would be a God of our own making, right? A God that would look an awful lot like you. Certainly not the God of the Bible. Certainly not a God worthy of your trust because he would be no greater than you. But friend, he is greater. <laughs> he is wiser. He's, he's in control. You're not, but he is. And notice here in James verse 15, his sovereignty doesn't abrogate human agency or, or mitigate your responsibility. James doesn't just say, you know, live like this, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, you know. Dominus Valente. You know, no. <laughs> What does he say? He doesn't say we should just throw planning to the wind. I know what's going to happen. I'm just a peon in God's universe. Boing, boing. No. God's sovereignty. This is so helpful in verse 15. Notice, God's sovereignty frames and grounds and, and it tempers. Like alloy strengthening a metal. All of our goals and our dreams for the future with this deep and reverent humility that recognizes only what God Almighty wills will ultimately come to pass. That's good. There's strength in that. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so to those of you who say, I don't like that because that doesn't leave me feeling free, I say this, God created you with a free will in the sense that you have an ability to make real choices that have a real effect on our world and on your future. Bible teaches that. But you are not free, friend, in an absolute or non-contingent sense. Okay? All of our activity is subject to the sovereign will of God. Which is two things. Humbling and comforting. <laughs> it's humbling because it reminds us the Lord is God and I'm not. And it's comforting, hear this, because who among us sorry, but I don't see any of you who I would trust to do this, can work all things together for good according to the counsel of your finite mind will. <laughs> you can't do that. So if your will is supreme, friend, you should be terrified. But if God's will is supreme, and it is, then you should be exceedingly 
because all he has purposed and promised, including the eternal joy of those who come to him in faith and obedience, will surely come to pass. 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared future for those who love him. Present. And so all our plans for the future as Christians at, at home or at work or in the public square or in the church, they should be characterized by, by a profound humility rooted in the sovereignty of God and a profound confidence rooted in the same thing. Because God's not up in heaven, think about this, letting us do whatever we want to do until we kind of get out of line of his will and, and then he's like, oh, okay. Eh, eh, and he just whacks you, you know? <laughs> you got out of line. Eh. No. He's not reactive. He's actively, lovingly, and wisely working all things together according to the perfection of his will. What, what's Isaiah say? Chapter 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. So you realize, I hope, that a deist or a Muslim or, or an animist might say, if God wills, we will live and do this or that. Deo Valente. But friend, only a Christian can say something radically different. If the Lord if, if the God who, who created the world and, and came into the world to rescue us from sin and death, securing our eternal joy in Jesus, if that Lord wills, and he is the only Lord, if he wills, then we will do this or that. And theologians of old called it, big word warning, <laughs> the doctrine of providence providence or God's sovereignty. And I, and I know of no better definition than the one found in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 10. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, active moment in the sermon. I'm going to read this question. You can stay seated. We're all going to declare the answer back to the Lord together. Okay, ready? What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, ready? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Question, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That's providence, friend. 
And in light of that, do not live or speak about tomorrow as if you were calling the shots. As James says in verse 16, look there, don't boast in your arrogance. The underlying Greek word is actually plural. It's don't boast in your arrogances. (laughs) Your manifold presumptive arrogances. Don't do that. Why not? Because to think or speak or act as if you're sovereign or your will is supreme is to reject the truth about God. Okay, think about that. It's, it's not just like presumption is foolish. Well, that was kind of dumb. No, presumption is evil. It's a sin of the heart by which we, we, we posit a universe where God is not as he has revealed himself to be. It, it's an act of rejection by which we deny the truth of divine providence. So, so you might feel like, well, this is just kind of an insignificant omission. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whoops. I guess I forgot to factor in the sovereignty of God. Sorry about that, God. Yep. Lord willing. No, friend. To the degree we do that, it's functional atheism. You're denying the truth about God. Which is why James says in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do, whoever knows we should move through life with a quiet confidence that comes from knowing we're not in control, God is, and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So so for you to think, or to act, or to plan, absent a conscious, abiding, and humble submission to the providence of God, isn't just a spiritual mistake, it's a sin of which we must repent, and turn away. It's the great arrogance behind not only our our self-confident assertions, but think about this, It's the arrogance behind so many of our fears and worries about the future. Why do I say that? Well, because we we project ourselves and those we love into a godless existence. We, We imagine a situation where God is not working all things according to the good of those who love him, and then we assume that's exactly what will happen, and so we freak out. And so James reminds us here that that winning the battle with fear and anxiety and winning the battle against self-confident planning requires the same sort of repentance. What's that? A humble recognition that, that repents of and turns away from the pride that writes God out of the equation. Because we're not in control. But that doesn't mean no one is. God is. So I want to encourage you in closing this week, friend, to read the obituaries. How's that for an encouraging word on Sunday? Or or walk through a cemetery. That could be the best thing you do for your soul this week. We we need the reality of our mortality to to expose the folly of our presumption. But, But then we also need to what? To steep ourselves in meditating on the word of God where where your soul can be confronted day after day with the reality of God's providence, his sovereign rule to which we humbly submit. Planning is good, planning is wise, but it's only the plans of God that will prevail. And so when when you plan something that is good, important qualifier, 
and it comes to pass, what do we say in light of this word? What do we say? I did it. I did. No. What do we say? Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Because you ordained for that to come to pass. That was your goodness. That was your faithfulness. That was your providence. To you be the glory. And, and when you plan something that is good and it does not come to pass, what do you say in light of this word? Well, then you say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. May your kingdom come, right? And your will be done, not mine. And so I pray, friends, and I invite you to join me in prayer that the Lord would make us a people who move through life with a quiet confidence that comes from knowing we are not in control, but God is. Let's pray. Lord, there is something beautifully simple about your word to us this morning. But Father, it speaks into every moment of our life. So Lord, I pray that you would make us the kind of people that, that your word in James 4 is divinely intended to create, a, a people who move through life with that quiet, confidence that we're not in control but you are and I pray you would increasingly help us to say that's not just a fact but that is good and that is all our joy in the present and all our hope for the future do that I pray Lord in your name Amen